Welcome to Connecting Awesome People, proudly brought to you by Cinder. At Cinder, we're more than just a staffing and recruiting company. We're dedicated to creating equitable workplaces where everyone can truly thrive. We believe in the power of community and the strength of diverse teams. Interested in partnering with us or learning more? Reach out at connect at teamcinder.com. Welcome to the first ever episode of Connecting Awesome People, our attempt to lift the voices of people working to build real change in our communities. Joining me for our first episode is my friend and community organizer, Marcus Carter. Marcus is an organizer and DEI practitioner whose life's work is to eradicate systemic oppression. If you've ever had the chance to see Marcus present on these topics, you know that he offers us a different perspective outside of the normal corporate DEI practitioner. If you haven't seen him speak, jumping into a conversation with us today is a great place to start. Welcome, Marcus. Hey, Paul, happy to be here. Really looking forward to this conversation and, you know, this podcast. Really, really excited. Yeah, that's a great place to start. I'm very excited to get this podcast going. Hopefully, this will be someplace where you and I can have all sorts of conversations going forward. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you'd hope to come out of being part of a podcast. Yeah, you know, a couple of things. Previously, we had a chance to obviously work together. We've also ran a community of practice with DEI practitioners, and uh, just you know, within the context of uh, local, you know, national, international events, I think there's an opportunity to have conversations that are a little bit more direct. Conversations that um, include a lot more advocacy, a lot more, you know, maybe just reality, if you will. We could step away from you know, all the nice frameworks, all of the PowerPoints, and just have a conversation out loud and also get to know what are what are people doing, you know, beyond their, you know, and I, I'm guilty of this, beyond our LinkedIn posts. Mm. And so, yeah, I just think it's a opportunity to have a little bit of a intervention against, you know, conversation topics and themes that seem a little too pristine for the, the measure of chaos we have these days. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to frame that. I think it's not an accident that we are starting this podcast during Black History Month. This is an important moment to really recalibrate how we show up in these heritage months and how we actually make the most of them instead of just checking a box once a year. I'd love to start by getting your thoughts on Black History Month. What's resonating with you right now? Great question. I've taken some time to think about this. I guess the place for me to start would, would just be with Bell, Bell Hooks. A lesson Bell Hooks taught me the first few times I read her work and analysis was that I had been led astray by narratives that tried to convince me to try to convince me that the reality I was experiencing was fiction, uh, that somehow the trauma that's, you know, inside my body, inside my psyche, inside my intellect from systemic oppression, be that through economic, cultural, or political means, that that was fiction. Here's what I mean by that. There are layers of trauma associated with wanting to be treated as human, wanting to be treated with dignity, with sovereignty, with respect, with autonomy, and and to really want the liberty to solve and dictate solutions within a context and experience relative to your understanding of systemic cruelty or unjust harm. 
And so for anyone, you know, listening, especially, you know, as a black person, think of the first time you learn about the institution of enslavement in schools or maybe a TV special. You have a certain rage accompanied by, you know, questions and analysis. And those questions, that analysis, it begins to be chastised, to be, you know, broken down, you know, by our history books which lay out a narrative that says, you know, these unjust acts are somehow not worthy of further interrogating because there's just, I guess I would say, a superstructure of ethics and values that don't measure your realities and somehow, you know, what you're calculating is incorrect. And so instead of nurturing your intuition, you're taught to sort of oppress it or suppress it. You're taught to sort of assimilate you're, you're taught to really like betray your own intuition, if you will, and have a faith, have faith in a, a structure or a narrative um, that is not holding, you know, safety, you know, for you. And so, yeah, I would just say, you know, I, I'd, I'd allow that to sit in just because much of what is being taught as Black history often has that uh, orientation. And so, you know, this is a, a, I guess I would say a long-winded critique of how Black History Month is always being, you know, told and or taught. Um, and if I could, you know, offer just like what I'd love to see instead, mm. is really, you know, how do we transition away from, you know, highlighting the first and really put emphasis on eradicating the ideological, political, cultural, and systemic inequities or injustices that hid, you know, whoever is the first in the first place, right? It's like, why do why do we have to dig so deep to, to find these individuals? Um, in addition to that, you know, why are these individuals only worthy if they feel like, you know, part of their success can be attributed to, you know, the structure that did initially cause them them harm? And so, Again, just getting back to Bell Hooks, you know, she taught me that lesson. You know, it's because she asked questions and she held on to, you know, that rage, as did, you know, James Baldwin, you know, who's famous for his quote. We have the likes of Toni Morrison. Obviously, you know, I'm a big fan of Nikki Giovanni. You know, if we step out of, you know, that domain, we can talk about people like Fela Kuti, um, Kwame Nkrumah, Fannie Lou Hammer, Marcus Garvey, Dessaline, and others. And when I say they held that initial rage and they asked questions, they really had a way to dissect uh, the science of oppression and, you know, liberation. They had a way of showing me that, you know, what Black people are experiencing is not fiction, right? It's not to be undervalued. It's not to be a tool that is manipulated, limited, or to be, you know, sort of the soul of America's boot, if, if you will. Otherwise said, you know, our suffering is not a... It's not a technology for rewriting history or absolving history or negating, you know, history. And so just just to conclude, I guess I, I would say, you know, when it comes to Black History Month, just as it comes with, you know, Black Lives Matter, racial equity, when it, as it relates to being trans and navigating systemic deficits, you know, when it comes to neurodiversity, ability, disability, various forms or lack of accessibility, there's like a, a very proactive and a reactive ever present, um, you know, let's call it alchemy or, or, I mean, you call it capitalism, right? You can call it patriarchy. <laughs> you know, I forget the great 
quote or, or, or framing by bell hooks at this moment, but all of that really distorts, you know, our, our humanity. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of sitting with me, you know, right now as it relates to black history. And so I'll pause there. Yeah, I think it's imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchy, something like that. The, the bell exactly. Yeah, so yeah. powerful. Mm-hmm. Highlighting, you know, the interlocking systems of oppression, really, which I think is, you know, we can't just limit this to one when when we recognize that we're all affected by multiple of these at the same time. Definitely, definitely. Um, I do have one thing to to highlight because I, you know, I, I don't want to leave anybody, you know, on a whim because there's always a question of like, you know, what organizations can do right. uh, as right. it relates to, to Black History Month. And I've been thinking about this. And I think it's not, you know, fair for me as one Black man to, you know, define that, you know, for everyone in, in the diaspora. Obviously, everyone's not on this call and, and doesn't have input. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that organizations have different contexts and you have to build within the context that your organization exists in. But what I will say is that, you know, for anyone listening, you can Google what's called the Collective Impact Form and take a look at their Community Engagement Toolkit, download it, study it, act with it. Some of the things they they highlight, one area which is focused on the need to listen and act with community, they have five points that I, I just think are really what institutions to focus on, but also what communities need. And so uh, the first point, I believe, is uh, build relationships with community-based leaders, organizers, and residents. Uh, obviously, that's that's significant. Number two, learn community history, context, and assess the, the assets defined by the community. Number three, know who is trusted, right, by the community. Number four, which I think is still new to some people, is just be aware of white savior syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, of these things, number five is one I'm constantly mindful of. And number five is move beyond listening to partnership and help build capacity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on that note, often just a, a grant or donation won't build capacity. I'm not saying that it's not important. And I am saying that it does not often build, you know, capacity. If you're in community enough with you know, different leaders, organizers, residents, you know how much capacity means, what that can do, or the lack of capacity, how disruptive that can be. So yeah, definitely check out the Collective Impact Forum, specifically their Community Engagement Toolkit. I think they have some some great things in there. This is a, a great moment to pause, Marcus, and, and highlight that one of the things I intend to do with each episode is to link out to a show notes document that will include as many links as I can possibly get from each of these conversations. And so not only will I include a link to that form, I'll, I'll do the I'll do the Googling for people. But awesome. also, you mentioned several really important Black thought leaders and activists a little earlier. I'll make sure that we're also linking to information about each of them. For now, I'll look at Wikipedia as an initial source, but ultimately there's probably some better sources as well. And really give people a chance to start hearing and learning about more people than just, you know, kind of the the default ones that we tend to learn about in particularly Black History Month. But in any of these heritage months, it often feels like, you know, the, the conversation focuses on a few exceptional standout people. And because we just go back to those same people over and over again, it sort of perpetuates the story that those are the only exceptional people. And in fact, obviously, <laughs> the, the world's history and more specifically black history is, is contains many really 
important people that there's lots of information about. And unfortunately, it's just not really what gets focused on in the heritage months in general. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's harmful, the narrative that continues to be perpetuated, you know, going back to, you know, some of the lessons I had learned from, you know, Bill Hooks. I'll, I'll never forget the first time I learned about, you know, the Maroons, you know, enslaved mm-hmm. Africans here, you know, in the U.S. and in, in other parts of the world who, you know, once brought over, you know, would, would, would go to, you know, the mountains, would find, you know, shelter, would build, you know, different communities beyond you know, the the plantation, in fact, in some cases would come back and raid the plantation and liberate, you know, others. But that's a that's that's such a radically different fundamental understanding of this, you know, institution of enslavement. When you say, wait, people were freeing themselves on their own accord. They weren't, you know, fighting for a certain law to be, you know, changed or some measure of benevolence. They themselves, you know, were seeking liberation and were able to you know, achieve that as well. I've said this before, and I'll continue to say it, but, you know, being in school and learning about Frederick Douglass, who is great in his own right, but never learning about, you know, Jean-Jacques Dessalines or or Toussaint or the Haitian Revolution. It's like, what, what am I being trained to learn psychologically, right? I can learn about um, Denmark Vesey. I can learn about Nat Turner. I can learn about failed revolts, or I can learn about someone who's been enslaved, but yet still fights for, you know, this this patriotic version of democracy and or, you know, again, go a little farther in Haiti and you find people who were not only willing to liberate themselves, they were also willing to liberate everyone, right? Make sure everyone had, you know, human rights, had sovereignty, and again, did not limit themselves to whatever previous version of governance, or insights, you know, that they had to navigate, you know, in, in bondage. And so, yeah, tons to be said for, you know, stepping out of the normal box. You know, this is always a good time to plug. I believe his name is Howard Zine. You know, you can check out, I think it's a zineproject.com or one of those things. But again, they always have, you know, phenomenal resources. They do have radical resources. And I would just, you know, ask people to continue to dig into, you know, more radical, revolutionary literature and in, in, in figures to understand there's, there's definitely a part of the story we have not been, you know, taught, not aware of. And if anything, we speak against that, you know, often at times versus being informed and moving forward. So, so yeah. I think one of the important pieces here to really think beyond just the limits of the United States of America, um, when thinking about the history of people from the African diaspora. And to be honest, that actually still focuses on people who've left Africa. But I think there are numerous voices and successful revolutionaries in Africa, like Thomas Sankara, like Kwame Nkrumah, who didn't leave Africa and in fact focused on liberating closer to home. And I think those are also part of the African history that really belongs also in the same discussion, right? You know, the definitely black history. You have people too small thinking as it were. Yeah. I was going to say you have people like, you know, Martin Luther King was there when, you know, Nkrumah gives a speech for, you know, independence. And so it's all, all connected. You know, right now we have, you know, a lot of folks, you know, across the African diaspora who are talking about, you know, return to Ghana, and if you know anything about Kwame Nkrumah, you know, one of his biggest influences were, was or is, you know, Marcus Garvey. And Marcus Garvey, you know, is well known for the Back to Africa 
movement, you know, it's back in the 1920s or 30s and such. And so, again, all of this is connected. And I think that's the, you know, beauty of you know, Black and or, you know, African is- history is looking at the connections. You know, as we speak, I believe the Bob Marley, you know, movie just got released. Right. Uh, I think I'm going to end up seeing it this this weekend, but I'm always surprised, you know, when I do read stuff on Rastafarianism and you learn how they uh, create language to critique capitalism, colonialism, imperialism, this notion of what is Babylon, right? And then what is what is Zion? And so if they're making those connections here, and then we have, you know, things like a Black Panther Party here or civil rights movement, you know, here, it's like these, these conversations are one and the same if you will. And so it's, it's very important to study the connections between resistance, also between, you know, oppressions as, as well. Actually, it's amazing we made it this far into the conversation without talking about the Black Panther Party, because not only is that an important part of Black history, but their effectiveness at organizing all across the, the country and ultimately even globe, to me, it's notable for a bunch of reasons, but in particular, it's notable for how little we're taught about it in our current education system. Yeah, I think we're not, we're clearly not taught enough, you know, about it, whether that's the the sickle cell testing, whether it's the other 64, 65, however many different programs, obviously the breakfast program for kids and so many other things that they did. I feel like I've dedicated my life to learning about the Black Panther Party, not just its politics, but also how did it develop so many leaders? I mean, there are so many, you know, brilliant people, you know, Hugh P. Newton, Elaine Brown, you know, folks like Asada, just anybody from the Black Liberation Army, Deruba bin Mohad, uh, Jalil Multakin, Bunchy Carter, you know, right now we have Mamiya Abu Jabal's, you know, fighting for his life as a political prisoner. There's so many other political prisoners, but I, th- I think people overlook just how many brilliant, brilliant people that you can either at your library or go online and order books from these people and understand their critique, their analysis, and why they felt it was necessary to offer, you know, direct resources to racialized and marginalized groups. Yeah. Frankly, it feels like a key part of Black History Month needs to be learning new things about American-based Black folks and Africans around the world through history almost as a, like, force yourself to not just learn about the same people over and over again. You know, once you start learning about people like Thomas Sankara, right, first president of Burkina Faso, I'd encourage anybody to listen who's listening, you know, just type in your search bar, uh, Thomas Sankara achievements, and marvel right. at, you know, what he did over the course of, you know, four years. Uh, Emil Carr Cabral, uh, Seko Touré, uh, people like, you know, Patrice Lumumba, uh, Queen Annie of the Maroons, uh, Queen Azinga. Um, you know, there's just there's just so many different folks. And, you know, if you don't want to look up those folks, I, I'd recommend looking up uh, different historians. You know, people like J.A. Rogers, uh, John Henry Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, read or watch a speech from Amos uh, Wilson. Yeah. Uh, look yeah. at people like, you know, Dr. You know, Wade Nobles, uh, Naheem Akbar, or just pick up you know, something that might be more accessible, like something from uh, Anthony T. Uh, Browder uh, or something from Dr. James uh, Smalls. And so uh, there's tons of resources out there. We just got to, you know, 
be critical as they, you know, attempted to teach us in, in school, right? Well, and, and, you know, I think Carter G. Woodson always warrants a shout out this time of year. Uh, but here, here's a man who literally 100 years ago wrote Miseducation of the Negro about all of the challenges with education uh, of black students and how we cannot be educating them in the exact same way that we're educating white students because their lived experience up to that point and after that point will be so different. I'd read that book about five years ago and it is still just as sharp today as it was when he was writing it a hundred years ago. Always a great time to read Carter G. Woodson. Just always. I mean, I can only plus one and in, in co-sign that. And it's still unfortunate that so many people may start off, you know, Black History Month without a detailed examination and reflection on the works he was doing. This time of year, when we think about Black History Month and and really looking forward on the calendar at the other heritage months that now are a regular part of the discussion, I think they raise important awareness around the fact that there's lots of oppressed groups, just like the quote you were borrowing from Bell Hooks earlier regarding imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchy, really emphasizing that there's a wide variety of oppression at play. Collectively, the Heritage Months benefit from some of what you were talking about earlier with regard to those five points of how to engage meaningfully with communities. It begs to ask, how do we prevent Heritage Months in general from just being check the box type of efforts? And I'm curious if you have any additional thoughts on that that you haven't already expressed here today. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh you know, because I, I, I do agree, but it, it would require the normalizing the this sort of, you know, I hate to use this term, but like this mosaic, if you will, culture. It, it would actually require us to truly understand what does it mean to, you know, be a, a melting pot and how do we create space for, you know, those those differences? How do we uplift, you know, validate and affirm, you know, these different experiences without anyone necessarily seeing those experiences as a threat, if you will. And so, you know, a lot would have to to change to normalize representation through political, ideological, cultural, economic, to see all of that reflected at once, because that's the reality of our lives as well. And so that would just necessitate a re-engineering our society, not just from a, a systems policy level, but more so from how we think and how we understand this world, our, our interest in our investment in humanity to want to actually see so much diversity thrive and be front and center all the time. It kind of reminds me whenever there's a football internationally and maybe like the Olympics and you see so many commercials that are not just diverse, just in terms of skin color or race, but you'll see different languages being spoken. You'll see how people will approach different problems or different sayings and things of that nature. And it's like, wow, you know, we want to see that kind of representation um, all the time. And we want to see it across different classes as well, right? Like across different class lines, there's different words, different lingo, different language you would use. We would have to see all that at once. We'd have to normalize those things. I think right now we're still at a point in which those things are either appropriated, there's still so many stigmas around certain groups. And so we still have a lot to unlearn and we have to be a lot more forceful. I saw a great clip online. Uh, uh, it said something to the f effect of like, Amer America suffers from boycott fatigue. Like 
are you tired, such and such? And then it just was like, well, grow a backbone. Like, stop it. Like, get your mind right. Like, actually have some dignity about your humanity and the suffering of others and stop with this, oh, my goodness, I'm tired of seeing these clips. Yeah, there's, there's a need for us to, again, be a lot more forceful in our protests, in our objections, because, you know, the one-off post or the, the week-long, I don't know, tension does not match. Reflecting on, you know, Black History Month, thinking of Montgomery bus boycott, right? Which, right. you know, in many folks' minds starts the civil rights movement. That thing lasted for a year. It's not just, you know, a week or summer, yeah. a year. Yeah. And so stay committed, you know, <laughs> stay committed. It reminds me of one of the many things that I've heard you say more than once, which is like, how do you stay uh, motivated? How do you stay energized? Oh, you put me on the spot. And so now I'm forgetting how <laughs> I respond to it. But, you know, there's a couple of things I think of, you know, I'm always reading history and it's not like I'm reading a sequence of losses. I'm reading right. about wins. Right. Uh, in fact, you know, thinking about, you know, some of the tragedies that are happening right now. Israel and Palestine. I forget what school. Maybe it was T. Santa Cruz uh, just voted to divest in Israel. And so mm. there are wins that are happening. There are there are alternatives that are taking place all the time. It's just what kind of news resources are you plugged into? This actually reminds me of one of my conflicts and tension. You know, when people talk about what is anti-racism, it's like if your news resources don't come from Native races or oppressed folks who are navigating these issues, you can't possibly hope to achieve any measure of anti-racism. You have to be willing to identify and be in solidarity with news sources that are not mainstream. And you have to be very aware for aware about why their critique is not mainstream as well. It's important to remind themselves that wins are happening all the time. It's actually exciting to fight for wins. Right. You know, it is actually more harmful to to stay in our current state and say, you know, what was me, things are getting worse. If I looked at the world through that lens, uh, or I should say, if my ancestors looked at the world through that lens, I wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be on this call today. And so it is actually very exciting to, you know, wake up day in and day out to, to be afforded, you know, that breath of life and be able to say, I'm, I'm going for a win. Yeah. Uh, I want a universe, a place in which there is justice, there is equity, there is you know harmony with one another, that we are upset if someone else's humanity is being engineered by somebody in a way that is oppressive. So I can wake up for that and get excited about that every single day with every single breath. Yeah. Uh, and it's important for people to keep that in mind because sometimes you know, you're in a room and it's a bunch of long faces and you're like, Last time I checked, we're still in the field. We're, we're still in the fight. Right. We still got an opportunity to help our generation and other generations feel not just liberated, but feel valued to, to achieve things. You know, when you're younger and they're like, you're preparing for jobs you don't know. It's like, I want them to prepare prepare for a society that is actually just. Right. For a society that we don't that know. Is, yeah, exactly. A, a society that can fulfill their wildest dreams. A society, to your point about getting rid of these observations, a society that will not confront and doesn't see a need to use slogans like Black Lives Matter, right? Like, yeah, I want a society that that 
you know, wealthy in understanding of humanity, as well as that sensitive to oppression, that any notion of it, you know, collectively, you know, people will work to eradicate it. Yeah. Sorry for putting you on the spot. I'll, I'll just say that even with you not knowing where I was going, you ended up getting there anyway. But the, Thank you. Thank the you. it's the spirit of like, how can I not be energized when I look at my history, right? How, how can I possibly say like, this is too hard when I look what the people who've come before me have overcome? Yeah, you know, that is the other piece. You know, we get to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion without the threat of sitting at a local counter later on today getting you know, beat up without the threat of assassination. You know, they say this on social media. It's like, how are we honoring, you know, our ancestors? I actually use that as a talking point when themes come up around imposter syndrome. I always say, well, who are you honoring, right? Are you honoring a group that is, you know, actively a group or system that's actively working to oppress you? Or are you honoring your ancestors? And I want to you know, be respectful of everyone's family dynamics, but you go back far enough and you likely have someone who is saying, go do it. Like they want to see you, whatever it might be, whatever that excitement you you have, they're like, go do it. And you look back at them and they're looking like you're like, yes, you're like, they're willing to take on the task for you just because they know how much it means to you. And so again, shake that you know, imposter syndrome and honor your ancestors, the people who want to see you be successful, the people who, you know, had to suffer. And this goes for anybody, right? I'm not just talking for, you know, black folks or folks of color. It's like people been through some rough times. And while none of our current situation is perfect, I think in some cases from a material standpoint, we are far off better, uh, if you will. Thanks for that, Marcus. I think this is a good place to stop for today and for our first episode, but obviously there's there's lots more to discuss here, and I'm really grateful for your time and generosity to be here today. Fortunately, Marcus has agreed to do part two of this conversation, and we'll do a second episode together on a different topic for next week. We hope you'll join us for future discussions, as well as dig into the resources that we are going to provide in the show notes, and we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, comments, requests, or suggestions for future episodes, please send them to connect at teamcinder.com. Thank you. This episode was sponsored by Cinder, where our commitment goes beyond staffing and recruiting. We're dedicated to fostering workplaces that celebrate diversity, equity, and inclusion. Want to connect or explore how Cinder can support your organization? Email us at connect at teamcinder.com. Until next time. Keep building connections and driving change. See you soon.